Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'd like to begin this podcast by recognizing the traditional owners of the land in which it is recorded. I pay respect to their elders past, present, and those emerging. See, look at us. We're professionals, Stephen. I don't know. You're much more of a professional than I am. But, um... <laughs> there we go. This is Stephen's audio for, for Sammy's podcast. <laughs> In case it gets lost, this is what it is. You got it. <laughs> this is what it is. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Nature or Nurture for this week. I'm joined by someone I'm a huge fan of and had the pleasure of chatting to in the past on my other podcast. I'm always asking him to do podcasts. This is the wonderful, the legend that is Mr. Stephen Tobolowsky. Welcome. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. I've been sick. I have to explain to people in the United States, because they won't understand this, is that Sam had what they call tonsillitis. Now, this is something that in the United States we eliminated generations ago because (laughs) apparently American scientists determined that tonsils are not necessary. And so every child in America at a very early age has a tonsillectomy and first sign of a sore throat. They, They are off to a little clinic and they have their tonsils and adenoids removed. I mean, it's like the neutering of the American people, but there are no tonsils in America. So they don't, they know, don't know what... Yes, yes, yes. You're in the Stone Age, man. Stone Age. <laughs> yeah, so you thought that Australia was pretty backwards when I emailed you to say that I had tonsillitis. I'm going, what? Tonsillitis? Come on. <laughs> now, Stephen, I start this podcast with a question that I always say is a simple question, but it's absolutely not a simple question at all. The question is, do you think that nature or nurture had the greatest impact on who you are today? It's a great question, actually. And I think it, I should, in full disclosure, I'm 71 years old. So I've had a, a long span to take a look at nature or nurture. And I have found that in different times of my life, uh, turning points have been created by nature. And at other times in my life, it has been created by nurture. And I could say from standing at this end of it, looking back, they were equally significant. Nature and nurture intervened in my life in times of crises, and nature and nurture, one or the other, uh, extended me a helping hand or opened a doorway that gave me an escape hatch to where I could breathe again. So I think they're both incredibly important. Uh, the, the place, A good place to start, I think, usually is a lot of people say when they meet someone's parents that that person suddenly makes sense. Were you like your parents at all? Are you, a, are you an equal split of your parents? No, I don't think so. But I learned a lot from my parents. I learned a lot from my parents. My father was someone who always believed in discipline and organization and work. And he, 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 I never really, if I look back at dad's life, he's still with us. He's 100 years old on his way to 101. Wow. 
in my experience as a child growing up with him, he didn't seem like a man who had a whole lot of fun in his life. And whenever you talk to him, he always talked about how hard it was growing up in the Depression, selling newspapers on the corner when he was a little child, uh, buying newspapers for three and a half cents, selling them for a nickel. And all the money he got was put into the family till. He never had anything and uh, never was really raised by his father and mother. There were so many kids in the family. He was closest to his older brothers and sisters rather than his parents. This is a world that we don't understand now. Mm. But I understood from dad. He taught me early on, and this, I guess, would be nurture. This would be under the category of nurture, is he said, always do your work before you play. And not only do your work, but do the hardest part of your work first. Then you do the easier stuff. Then you can play. And dad is a guy who never got to the play, <laughs> who never got to the play. And I ended up being a person who went into show business in which my play was my work. So, and I think one of the reasons why I still get a lot of work, even at the age of 71, is like my father's example, I always worked hard. I always yeah, put work yeah. first. I, I didn't get drunk or stoned the day before a shoot. I, I tried to make sure I did all my work, all my preparation before I went onto a set. That came from dad. Now, my mother, my mother was spiritual, joyous, an amazing, amazing woman. Uh, she didn't have a ton of education. She was a nurse, a professional nurse, but, uh, you, you know, she basically went through high school and then went to some college and nursing school, and she met my father when she was a nurse. And she loved to read more than anything else. And so I guess as a child, in terms of nurture, I thought, well, reading ain't going to hurt you if it'll make you like mom. But she was so loving and so forgiving, except when anybody was mean to her kids. And then there was no forgiveness ever. Ever. There, and it could have been an insult at school. You know, she would come back 20 years later. I remember when they, when they called you this in sixth grade. I am never going to forgive them. Uh, but my mother had an amazing sense of humor. And I found her hilarious, constantly hilarious. And I think I probably got a lot of my sense of humor from my mother. So that, was a comp- that would probably be nature in the fact that I was around this person who was constantly able to see the humor in everything, and it affected me that way. Yeah. Did you, was it only you growing up? Were you an only child, or did you no, have no, no. You know, siblings around you? Elder brother, younger sister. And my, my older brother, uh, he was Mr. Responsible. You know, he, we were the classic three-kid family. You know, the eldest kid uh, got a ton of attention from the parents, and he was a great student. He was a national merit finalist, semifinalist, which in America means you did really good on this test in high school. He went to Rice University, which was incredibly difficult. He became a doctor. You know, he did all the right things. You know, got married, had kids, and the joke was that I was always going to be this kind of oddball goofball, but I ended up, you know, being successful as an actor and marrying and having a couple kids too. So I kind of 
walked both those lines. Then my sister uh, was, she's a lot like my mother, amazing sense of humor. She became a PhD in education, professor, that kind of stuff. So our family was big on, with the school books. Like our family was respected the school books and to do your studying. So, so I kind of grew up with that as well. Yeah. So was it a shock when you ended up getting into acting? Were you, was it a shock to anyone or did everyone kind of go, no, this yes. is Tobo. This is the Tobo was, we know and love. <laughs> it was highly, it was highly, uh, it was, it was one of the greatest lies of my life. So I always wanted to be an actor. Were you like Certainly. that as a kid, like a young kid? You you wanted to be an actor? That uh, was yes, always I thing. wanted to be an actor from the age of five because I loved monsters. I thought monsters were real, and I <laughs> thought it would be a chance for me to hang out with Godzilla, Frankenstein, the werewolf. I thought they were real, and I could yeah. go and, and, and meet these guys and sit around with Godzilla and smoke cigarettes. I, <laughs> I thought that's what my life was going to be. I didn't, I didn't realize... know that Godzilla smoked cigarettes. I didn't well, know that was... <laughs> you know... If you remember the movies, he was always breathing fire and smoking. You know, not, but, but, you know, in terms of humans, you know, I felt like I could breathe on a cigarette and imitate Godzilla. You know, it, it just Japan wouldn't catch on fire. But, but I, you know, that's what made me want to go into show business. Then I got sick when I was 12 going on 13. I was sick for three years and I couldn't play and I couldn't do sports. And the only thing I could do was uh, go to speech class, drama class and study hall. And it was in the speech and drama and study hall. Study halls where I read plays and then speech and everything. That was the one thing I could do. So I went into debate and auditioned for plays and all because I was sick. But that made me love acting. So Mm. I went to SMU and I told my – they said, well, you're not going to become an actor. And, and I go, no, ma'am. So what I did my freshman year is I told them I was majoring in geology, which was a huge lie, but not a lie because the courses I were, was taking were the courses you could take if you were going to be a geology major. Mm-hmm. I was taking geology and theater – you, you had to take an arts class, so I was taking theater. I took all of my English literature classes, which included plays, but I told my parents I was majoring in geology. Then the second year, uh, you kind of had to declare your major in a way, and I just didn't tell my parents anything. They just asked how the geology was going, and I lied and said, it's great. You know, there's a huge geosynclinic uh, area right outside of Dallas, and I think it could be a, a site where we're going to find uh, some prehistoric shales, which could lead to a finding of oil. So, uh, you know, you always have to look for the syncline, and the huge geosynclinic areas are the ones that really date back to the age of the dinosaurs. This if you told me I, that, I would not ask any further questions. <laughs> right. I've got no follow-up. You know, <laughs> but, but, but fate intervened, and for some reason, the, the theater in Dallas was doing a children's show, and I don't know how I got the phone call. I wish I knew this. But the head of the theater asked me if I wanted to play this part in this children's show. 
And so I said, sure. So I told mom and dad, oh, I was going to do this children's show at the one professional theater in town, Theater 3. Dallas Theater Center was not an equity theater at that time. So Theater 3 was an equity theater. So they felt that was very, they were very happy for me because also it wasn't going to be my career. So I just continued along that path, not telling my mother and father what I was doing until it kind of came time to graduate. And by that point in time, I was in a play, and I told mom and dad I could not go to my graduation because I had a Sunday matinee. And my mother went, and she went anyway, even though I wasn't there. And I said, but mom, I'm going to be doing the matinee. You want to just come to the matinee? I'm actually getting paid to do this part. And I'll be there physically. I'll be, th- I'll be there physically. And she said, no. You know, my whole life I've spent dreaming of you graduating from college, and I just want to hear them say your name. Wow. And that's my mom. And she sat there while I went off and did a matinee. So, yeah, they didn't know, and, and they still were saying, uh, my father especially, well, you know, we're not going to support you in this theater thing. You know, you're on your own. And I said, mm. I don't want a penny from you, Dad. You've yeah. done enough already. I'll, I'll make my own way. And then they were thrilled. Yeah, when, when they didn't call out your name, was suspicion, <laughs> did they start to get suspicious? Or they thought, no, they called they out your name. No, in America, they call out your name, whether you're there or not. Right. <laughs> Right, so she just clapped and... No, I told I told her that I wasn't going to be there. She just wanted to go to the ceremony and hear, and hear pop and circumstance and hear them call out Stephen Tobolowsky. <laughs> and wow. I got my payback too, because when I went to my son's graduation from college, William, my youngest son, William, he was not at his graduation because he said, Mom and Dad... All the kids in my class want to get high for their graduation. But I don't want to get high. I want to really get high. Now, he was, at this point, I want to tell you, he was a highly trained athlete. Right. Highly trained in in long-distance running. And he signed up to do a climb to the base camp of Mount Everest. And he said, I want to really be high. And so Annie and I, my wife and I, went to William's graduation they announced his name. No one walked across the stage except the principal did stop and say, William, wherever you are on your trek, we want to say this. And then the entire graduating class yelled out, we love you, William. <laughs> Wouldn't have missed it for the world. That's amazing. Did, did, your, did your parents kind of shape the way that you you started parenting. Do you do you find similarities, or did or did kind of that shape you know them, maybe not not supporting your acting, but kind of just letting you do it? Has that has that had any influence you think on on how you've parented? I certainly think my mother shaped my parenting, and and my father did too in a negative way. Mm. You, you know, in that I said like, well, I'm not going to be that strict with the kids as my father was, and with my mother. I learned as a child, you get a lot more with sugar than you do with vinegar. And, you know, my mother was always sweet. And whenever she got upset, it was so rare that it really devastated us. And we wanted to please mom. 
Whereas yeah. my father was always upset over every little thing that possibly we did wrong. And so it was always like, this isn't that big of a deal, Dad. You know, it's, you know yep. we were defensive against him. So as a parent, you know, my wife and I, and this is a good thing. This is something that's really important in married couples' lives. We're on the same page parentally. You know, my wife and I, the way we handle our children, we're on the same page in terms of discipline, in terms of freedoms, in terms of the way we deal with teachers and the Mm -hmm. educational construct here in America, which is insane sometimes. But you have to to deal with it. And we're on the same page, which is good. Was that a chat that you had, or is it just you two are quite similar in, in that way? It's a miracle. It's a miracle that I see now how different people are in terms mm. of that. But Annie is a per- she's an actress and a director too. She's somebody who works as hard as I work at anything. She is a brilliant homemaker and a brilliant cook, and her her work, I guess, her work ethic is the right word to use. Her work ethic both in theater and in creating a home and in child rearing is is mm. amazing and it's it's the same as mine would be if i reared children if i you know i i i appreciate i appreciate what she does yeah, that's beautiful. Now, I just want to take a, a step back to when you said that you were sick um, growing up. How, how sick were you? I'm assuming it wasn't tonsillitis. That's all I know so far. Hey, listen, when I had the, my first sore throat, those tonsils came out. I did have tonsillitis, but I was a child, man. Yeah, Not an yeah. adult. Oh, I can't believe you people. Uh, no, I was sick. Um, I had done a play at the park, and we had a... a party that night, th- that late afternoon after the show, and that night I had terrible pain in my body, and I ran to the bathroom, and just a stream of blood was running out of me, and I was scared to death, and I went to mom and dad, and I, that was an emergency. That never happened before, where I needed both parents in the middle of the night because I had internal bleeding. And that was the beginning of a three-year, absolute, horrific period in my life where I couldn't eat. Anything would cause bleeding. Uh, I was anemic. I was weak. I lost over 50 pounds. I couldn't play. I couldn't do anything. And... Uh, the despair was enormous, and I went to so many doctors and had so many different treatments, and I would hear my mother crying in the night. They were certain it was cancer. They were certain they were going to lose me to cancer, mm. but it wasn't. And somehow, right around my 15th birthday, they took me to a doctor, Dr. Herb Bailey, who prescribed a medicine that had never been prescribed to me before, a medicine called Pafibamate 500. And Pafibamate is no longer sold in the United States. And it's a seizure drug that they usually give people who have epilepsy. Now, they still sell it in Europe, and I think they may sell it in Australia. You know, they may. Uh, 
but he gave me out of all this stuff. Oh my God, it's just terrible to think about. I took my first dose of pafibamate, two pills in the morning, two pills in the evening. Two days later, I felt slightly hungry, and the bleeding stopped. Never wow. to never to return. After like two days of this drug, it stopped. Never to return. Now, this could have been some kind of colitis. It could have been some kind of Crohn's disease. I've heard other people who had the misfortune of ending up getting a lot of surgery when they were young, where they go in and cut out parts of your intestine that are ulcerated and torn to pieces, and but they didn't in me. But this wow. drug cured me, and uh, it probably shaped my life and turned me into an actor more than anything else. Yeah, so in that time, it would have changed the family dynamic, I imagine, with you sick that long, I mean, there would have been a lot of, you know, uh, that your parents would have been so worried. What about friendships at that time? Did you did you find that friendships, I mean, did you sustain friendships or was it too hard because you were sick? Did they come and visit you? Like, what, what, what were was, your friends it, like at that time? It was too hard. All the friendships mm. changed because before my friendships were determined by athletics because I was playing football and basketball and baseball and now I couldn't play anything. And mm. so my friendships became books and literature I started reading Shakespeare and went like, uh, I remember the first Shakespeare play I wrote, read, was during this period of time where I was in, I want to say, eighth grade, something like that. And I was in study hall and I thought, well, I'll read King Lear. I've heard of that play. Uh, And, you know, I could hardly understand a word of it trying to read it. I, I didn't know what it was about. And then I came across this one line of Albany. I think it was Albany in it, uh, who's a side character. Uh, and he says, who is it that can say this is the worst? And I read that line and I went like, I know what that means. I know what that means. You We're in a terrible situation now, but who is it that can say this is the worst? that situations could be so much worse than they were. And I know, like from my situation, I was so much better than I was now, but it could have been so much worse. Mm. Who is it that can say this is the worst? And you can't live your life trying to find the, trying to plead to people around you, look at me, I'm in the worst situation at all. You can't be one of those people that are begging to be pitied. Because nature doesn't work that way and nurture doesn't work that way. There's no sympathy for the pitied. You know, in terms of nature and nurture, both nature and nurture respect someone who stands up. And that's for sure. Was there a point when you started to feel better that that everything kind of changed for you and you started to have a new lease on life? Did... Did it kind of, did it just go, oh, I'm, I'm going to be an actor, I'm going to do this? Did, did, did you go back out and start making new friends? What, was, what were you like then? Yes. I, well, uh, the first thing that happened when I started feeling better was I had more energy. And all of this energy started going into drama and debate. And mm. so I started meeting all sorts of people through drama and debate. I was going on debate tournaments, uh, My partner and I were very good. We won city and regional. We won state. We went to national. You know, we were very good in debate. Uh, 
I, I ended up playing a lot of leads in the school plays, and there are always a lot of good-looking girls in the drama department. And, and so, you know, there were, I was going like, oh, I could see a social life here. I, I, you know, fell in love with Kathy Steely. I fell in love with Julie Davis. You know, I, there are all these people in drama and debate that were gorgeous and smart. And, oh, I'd, and suddenly I felt like I was a man again and alive and uh, part of the world with this new energy. And it, it just came at the right time in that that energy ended up going into theater and drama. Mm. in that I just had this surge of life again, and so I was 100% invested. And my mother, this is my mother, there was a little steakhouse. Uh, I, there's a cat over here I'm petting. This is <laughs> this is part of nature and nurture over here I'm petting this cat. Uh, You're like a Bond villain just off to the side. There. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I, I had this terrible anemia. And so we went to this steakhouse on Jefferson Boulevard, the charcoal broiler, and they tentatively ordered a steak, which I hadn't been able to eat in years because it'd be catastrophic. And I ate it, and I didn't get sick, and it felt good to eat something that good. And I had a baked potato, and I had a salad, and I went like, so my mother took me to eat there since it didn't make me sick like three times a week. She wow. kept taking me back there to try to build up from the anemia. And later in my life, it's nature, you know, I never really recovered. Later in my life when I had to have open heart surgery, this was one of the nature things that got me, which was in 2011, I still had anemia. And so that took a whole other sinister turn, and that meant like, well, if you have this surgery— we're going to have to give you a transfusion because of your anemia. And there is the possibility of diseases that are carried in transfusions like AIDS. There is the possibility. And you have to sign the piece of paper saying you're not going to sue the hospital if you get any blood-borne diseases from your transfusions. Mm-hmm. Now, they try to be careful, but and, – and so there's an added – uh, I'm sure your audience would understand it's very stressful having open-heart surgery. It's probably the most stressful thing you could go through. I can't imagine anything worse except being on death row or something. But when you have to sign a sort of waiver on top mm. of this saying, by the way, if anything we do kills you, you can't sue us. Yeah, you know, it, 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 it's, it was a terrible thing. But the, the anemia from my childhood is with me today still. Wow. Wow. Now, um, I, I, have a, I have a heart condition. And so, uh, you know, they've got a thing now called an electroablation, which I think at some point, you know, you can get. But when, when you hear that there's a problem with your heart, it's one of the scariest things that you can hear. Did, did that kind of change you right from that moment? Did you, did you start to worry about everything? Did you stop to, you know, you had to kind of take a bit of time off work as well, I imagine. You know, I'm going to jump out of that, the answer to that question for a second to talk about this discussion in general. And that is one thing that we rely on in this discussion is when you say you, you, 
did you do this then? Did you do this? And the question I've been dealing with now at 71, which could be interesting for your listeners, is what is you? Because the you of the 15-year-old kid who suddenly finds out he's healthy is a completely different you than the you of me that was a sophomore in college with the teacher who was trying to destroy him, which is a completely different you from when I found my first girlfriend. And I was, all that mattered to me was love. And, and that you was completely different from the guy who found out he had to have heart surgery, open heart surgery. At that point, at that point in my life, 2011, I'd already had a broken neck in 2008. And my wife and I got through that difficult period of time, which was hellacious. She had to, you know, she's a person who works hard anyway, but she had to do everything for me with a broken neck. And now I just healed from the broken neck. I was working again. I was on the show Glee. Uh, I, you know, all I suddenly I'm getting movie parts and everything again, and voila. Now I have to go back in the hospital for something absolutely horrific in which there is a significant possibility that you will never wake up from that surgery. And we had to do it again. So Annie and I, at that point in time, we had been in survival mode once before. And now we had to go into survival mode again, where I knew once I had this surgery, if I woke up from it, it was going to be a long way back. And, and it, there is a fellowship of the ring, so to speak. Uh, I have run into people who've listened to my podcast where I talk about stories of my heart surgery and all of that. I think that those stories are uh, uh, the Rubicon uh, the Return of Mr. Huge, and The Long Road to Somewhere Else. Those three stories are the ones about my, my heart surgery. And the, f- the fact it wasn't the first catastrophe I had been through was critical in being able to handle it. So a lot of times we take a look at life and we see these horrible things happen to us, like a broken neck or a broken heart. And then you find, wait a minute, it's a survival tool. Because I've been through crises before, I know how to get through a crisis. And so my wife and I were able to get through this heart crisis, but I was not the same person as I was when I was 15 or whatever, I was a completely different guy with completely different uh, parameters of what I was able to tolerate and what I wasn't able to tolerate. For, for you now, do you think there is a, you know, when you're 71 years old and, you know, you've had all this life experience, is there anything that you would go and tell a young Tobo, you know, when, you're, when you were little and you were sick? Was there anything <laughs> that you would want to go back and say? Ah. <laughs> God, that's so great. I love something my wife does. When we would travel, we would travel to her home in Georgia. And, you know, I'd drive. We'd visit her parents when they were with us and 
go by the old school. We rolled down, and she rolled down her window and yelled, it's going to be okay. She just screamed out the window and I like almost swerved off the road and I was that. And I go, what are you doing? She says, I'm talking to the old me who didn't think I would make it this far. And, and I don't know because that's a, your question is wonderful and profound. And I have to say at this point, it's a toss-up as to whether what made me were my skills and my dedication mm. or the catastrophes and the challenges. Yeah, I certainly think the catastrophes and the challenges uh, have, have fueled me at least as much as my early ability to act or to study or to, or to do all the things that made me a competent actor. I'd say, you know, the, the horrific things that happened to me were enormously beneficial. And I think if I would just say to myself, when you go through those storms, pay attention, learn what it takes to get through a storm, because believe me, there are going to be more. That's the only way out of this life. One storm after the other. And sometimes you find something beautiful. At the, on the, you find the rainbow. You find the damn pot of gold after, after you, because of everything you've learned from the bad things. So just don't give up with the bad things. It, it's, it's good stuff, but it, it's medicine. It's, you need it. Absolutely. Now, the, the matinee performance on a Sunday, your mum doesn't, doesn't come to that. When do your parents start to accept you as this is your career path and this is what you want to do with your life? I think one of the big things was when I was in L.A. and I was doing working at a professional theater company, making like $400 a week. So I was making a living as an actor. And Mel Brooks came to the show because Bill Pullman was in the show with me and Bill was cast in uh, Blazing... No, uh, Star... Oh, um, oh, I, I can't even think of it right now. Star, oh, I know what you're talking about. I know the... I know exactly. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Exactly the film you're talking about. I will. Yeah, I'm seeing yeah. it in my mind, and I'm having one of those things where I just see a block yeah, of letters yeah, yeah. in my Spaceballs. Yeah. So Space. Bill Pullman was the lead in one of the leads in Spaceballs, and Mel Brooks came to see the play, and I was in it. And afterwards, Mel came up to me and said, "You know, there may be a part for you in Spaceballs, and why don't you come down and audition with me, and let's see if you get it." And so I did get it, and I called my mom and dad. And I was captain of the guard in Spaceballs. And they felt now my career was real because they knew who Mel Brooks was. They knew for sure who he was because he was world famous and he was someone of their generation that they loved and admired. And so if he's hiring me, then maybe that's better than this theater stuff. 
that I kept doing with the head of the National Theater of Norway. You know, Mel, Mel Brooks is more real. And, uh, and then when I was on Broadway, oh, man, oh, did they love that. Mom and Dad loved the trip to New York. And when I was nominated for a Tony Award, oh, my God. Now they're in New York and they're like, dee, 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 dee. we love that Stephen is in show business. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, they did a complete turnaround when they felt like, oh, I was succeeding. Yeah. For did, sure. Did, did your whole family come and, and, and support you? Were they all excited? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, indeed he do. And not only that, uh, th- this is something that's interesting. I've done, what, I've done two Two Broadway shows. One was a failure. One was a huge hit. I directed a off-Broadway show that was a huge hit. And uh, yeah, when you do a Broadway show, whether it's a hit or a flop, everyone who you've ever known in your entire life will come to the show. Yeah. When I was doing the successful show, which was Mornings at Seven which I did, I think, in the year like 2000, 2001, around in there. We ran for nine months. We could have run for years. But as actors, we were tired. We were all, most of us were from Los Angeles. We had some of the folks from New York were in the show too. And we were just saying to the producers, we're kind of tired of being in New York. We're kind of tired of being hits on Broadway. We're kind of tired of being nominated for, you know, Tony Awards. I mean, did you ever think you would reach that stage in your life? Can we just wrap this play thing up? We were playing to 95% capacity houses every night. People loved this show. And, and we ended up leaving New York, stopping the show, just basically telling the producers we wanted to go to L.A. And then we did it for about three months here in Los Angeles. Uh, that's where you – from going from wanting to get a part in anything – to getting a part in a professional show, to getting a part in a big theater, to getting a part on Broadway, to being in a hit on Broadway and going, I'm done. I want to go home. I've had it. Enough of this. Been there, done that. Let's move it along. You know, so, but yeah, everybody came. People from my elementary school, everybody came to see the show on Broadway. Yeah. Everybody how do you deal with the successes and how do you deal with the failures? Is there a different way that you, are you able to switch off? And, and I mean, in any sort of creative form, you've had a, such a successful career, but as you say, there's a Broadway that wasn't a Broadway thing that, that went really well and a Broadway thing that didn't go well. How, how do you deal with both of those? Uh, they all leave a mark. They all leave a mark that changes you. That goes back to the you of your questions. When, when, when we did the show that was a failure in New York, we did it first at the Hartford Stage Company, which was in Hartford, Connecticut. It's a very prestigious theater. And we did an off-Broadway for the playwright, to, who was Beth Henley, for the playwright to look at the play, make any changes they wanted. But we were reviewed. And they, the reviews were stunning, were glorious. Time magazine, which was a thing back then, reviewed our play at the Hartford Stage Company and said, this is not only the play of the year, it is the play of the decade. Now, true, it was very early in the decade. 
You know, they, they pulled the trigger on that compliment a little too soon. But we all felt we were in a huge hit from the reviews we got. We expected we were going to go right into New York City and get great reviews from Clive Barnes and Frank Rich and all those people. We thought we would be, we were making plans, opening up bank accounts, finding like where can we find a place to stay in New York for the next three years because darn it all, we're going to be in a huge hit. And then opening night, well, you know, opening night is an opening night. Maybe people in Australia should know that actually we had been running the play for audiences in what they call previews for about three weeks or so before opening night, something like that. And we were getting standing ovations and everything. You know, like we were certain we were in a huge hit. Everybody loved it. And so we had our opening night party. Uh, We went out. Everybody was dancing and drinking. And let me tell you, you you find out you're in a disaster in the most subtle, tiny ways. And that is everybody's partying, everybody's dancing, and then nobody brings a copy of the New York Times review into the party. And we keep playing, and then like suddenly people start leaving the party around midnight. I go, why are people leaving the party at midnight. I mean, we're just kind of getting started with this shindig, you know, that we're... And then Beth's agent shows up and he comes over and taps her on the shoulder and whispers, and then she leaves the party with him. And so I go outside and they're sitting on the curb and she's wearing her opening night gown her with her opening night hairdo they're sitting in the pouring rain on the curb, and she's crying, and he has his arm around her. He's wearing his Brooks Brothers suit, you know, and I'm going like, oh, my God, we're dead. We are dead. Before I ever heard anything about the review. Yeah. Dead. And so uh, it w- we, we were shocked. But getting back to your original question, When you have a big success and when you have a big failure, they both leave their mark, but they're both done. When you have a big success, eventually you're going to get to the point where people say, well, what have you done for me lately? And if you have a big failure, a lot of times if you get the opportunity to do do it again, you have a chance— for revival and resurrection. And there's almost nothing as thrilling as that. I mean, take a look at Christianity. I mean, you, you base the whole thing on resurrection, on, yeah. on the wondrous nature of the power of resurrection. And that always exists, especially in the arts. In, in something as nebulous as the arts, there's always the chance to have another good day. And so you always have to remember there's another day where you will you will have to prove yourself again if you've had a success and if you've had a failure you have a chance to rewrite the book a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh I have standard questions I ask on this podcast 
Stephen. So Fire I'll start away. to go through these. And if you have an answer for them, amazing. But if you don't, we move right along. I got so, you. <laughs> what traits in people do you admire the most? What are you What are you drawn to in a person? I would say the honest answer to that is courage. But courage is a very rare attribute. But it it follows a chain of things. When people have courage, they generally tell the truth more often. And when they when there is more truth, there's more humor. So yeah, for me, sure. me, I dig courage because eventually it leads to humor. But but courage is the most admirable thing I find in people. Is humor really a big part of your life? Are you always drawn to humor first? Always. Always. Yeah. Uh I think uh, it was uh, Freud's book on comedy. You know, Freud's book on comedy, uh, which he wrote in 1915, uh, Jokes and Their Relationship to the Unconscious. And Freud said, the essence of humor is making the meaningful meaningless or the meaningless meaningful. You think of Monty Python's Silly Walks. You know, you make the the director of Silly Walk, so you make the meaningless Silly Walks meaningful. They have a commission of Silly Walk. So it's the essence of comedy. Uh, so you have to have truth for that to exist, that, that you have to know that something is meaningful and something is meaningless yeah. as by nature. So then you could do the opposite to create comedy. And so comedy always points to what is really true one way or the other. That's yeah, why wow. when we're satirical with our government leaders, you, you know, it, it really points to who they are. It, it points to, I remember Saturday Night Live did a sketch on Ronald Reagan. And, and the whole thing about Ronald Reagan at the time in America, he, he was a president who was both very popular but also very reviled by whoever— but it's that he was kind of all grandfatherly and, you know, he would doze at meetings and things like that. So their skit on him was he's there in his office and he's kind of nodding and doting and kissing the baby and saying hello. And then they go and then all of a sudden the doors close. He pulls down a, a thing. He, he pulls down a map and a pointer says, this is what we're going to do next. And then he's like full of it. We're going to do this and this and this and this. And we're going to, you know, and everybody was laughing hysterically because that isn't who this guy is. But it was like it pointed to who he really was. Yeah. You, you, know, the, yeah. The, the, you know, that's what comedy always does. So, yes, I, I do look to comedy and everything. But in show business, uh, Sam, take a look. Well, American television so it may be different in australia but what percentage of our entertainment would you say is comedy wow i i think it would be quite high but that's maybe because i consume a lot <laughs> what would be your you guess <laughs> my guess i would but say you're, you're right by the way it is quite high it is yeah. quite high so you are correct so where would you guess it is does this include news? Does this include drama and everything? I, I, I guess I would kind of. I say. would just. I would just say it includes uh, popular entertainment, both on television and in film and theater. Yeah. I, okay. I would maybe say it was like forty percent. Ninety percent. Ninety percent is comedy. 
Wow. 90% are shows like The Office and 90, you know, that and because The Simpsons, you know, we and South Park, you know, these shows are running in syndication all the time, 24 hours a day. We have comedy in the background all the time. And then mm. we have the cop dramas. We have a few of the cop dramas. And then we have a few reality TV shows now, but we basically watch reality TV shows so we get a kind of unhealthy laugh. Oh, here's Cattail. And an <laughs> unhealthy laugh at it. You, you wow. know, but 90% of our entertainment, that is just a figure I had heard from uh, some producers who are creating content, 90%. That's so much higher than I thought it would be. I have the next question here. Yes, if you could choose to be born into the perfect environment, what would that look like? It would be an environment where the individual person has a lot of freedom, mm-hmm. that they're not born into a society that's completely run by the government. You know, that people have free, freedom to go places, to drive cars, to see things mm. if they wish. Uh, that art is respected, that classics are revived and taught again and again, that we, it, it is the good musician who listens to Bach. You know, he isn't passe because... Certainly, Chopin based a lot of his work on Bach. And, and you know, we have to go back and, like, here in America, there's uh, now an English literature program that doesn't teach Shakespeare. Wow. What's that about? The greatest writer in the history of the world, and they don't teach that. So I think it is uh, an environment that reveres what, what we have done well in the past— as well as looking for new doorways, new adventures in the present and future. Yeah, amazing. What's your favorite thing about yourself? I think if you were to ask me today, which you are, it's that I haven't quit. I'm a kind of guy that either by foolishness or stubbornness never quit. And that's the thing I, I feel like I'm very lucky I have. What do you wish you could do better? I wished that sometimes I have a, an anger trigger like my father, too quick, too quick mm-hmm. to anger. I think that nothing really comes from that, from a quick, yeah. angry response to anything. So I wish I had more patience. And now that I'm answering this question, that is exactly what my mother used to tell me. Stephen, the key to everything is patience. So I wish I had more patience. Yeah. Who influenced you the most? It depends who that you is. You know, early in my life, it was certainly my mother. Uh, When I was in high school, uh, certainly my drama teacher, Mary Curtis. When I was in college, I had a teacher who saved my life, Jack Clay, who was head of the acting program. He put himself on the line to protect me. Jack Clay influenced me, and he was a brilliant teacher. Uh, Later in my life, Rabbi Meyer Schimmel, I was feeling very kind of lost and alone in life, and I wanted to find my Jewish roots again. And he took me on a magical mystery tour that lasted over a decade, where he taught me and instructed me constantly on Judaism, and he was a brilliant man. Uh, And my wife, Anne, uh, and my first girlfriend, Beth, those are the people that have influenced me the most. Yeah. 
who do you choose to surround yourself with now? And has that changed over time? <laughs> what a great question. I am in, I'm one of these people who's in a profession that I don't have a lot of choices to who I surround myself with. Mm. I'm usually surrounded by actors. You know, yeah. actors and directors is who I'm usually surrounded with. And thank God that hasn't changed. But, but I think to the true meaning of, of your question, I think I used to look for people to lead the way for me and maybe teach me how to be bad because I was such a good kid. Mm-hmm. And now I try to avoid people who drink a lot, certainly who do drugs, and certainly who waste their time and talents. I try to avoid those people because I know that that way doesn't lead to anything. When are you at your happiest? Hilarious question. Probably if I get a job six weeks before I have to do the job, that yeah. night I am the happiest. And then I get progressively more miserable as the job approaches. And then the other time I'm happiest is after I've done a job and I felt like I've been successful. So the feeling of anticipation where there is no jeopardy attached and the feeling of success, those things make me happiest. <laughs> when are you at your lowest? When I uh, despair. When, when I feel that there are no good solutions available to me and this is when I need to have more patience. And because in my life, there's always been an answer. It just may not be readily available. But when I despair is when I'm at my lowest. Yeah. If you could pinpoint the moment in your life that you think had the greatest impact or influence on you, what would that be? Again, here's the you. Uh, when the teacher tried to destroy me in college and I never gave up, and I found a way to defeat her, and I ended up not only graduating, but graduating first in class, first in my class. That certainly, uh, that moment had a great deal of influence on me because I thought, Stephen, if you play it right, you have control over your life. And certainly all my uh, catastrophes with illness, yeah. uh, those moments had enormous influence on me. What's the hardest thing you've been through and did it change you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> every one of them, every one yeah. of them changed me. And uh, first of all, the the uh, broken neck was incredibly hard, and the heart surgery was incredibly hard. And uh, my first breakup, serious breakup, was very hard. And yes, they all changed me. All of them changed yeah. me. It wasn't never the same after any of them. Yeah. What gets you going every day now? What, what motivates you to, to keep working? It's the thought that I'm going to see my grandbaby. And it's like every day I get to see her and every day she fills me with such joy. And if people told me how great having grandchildren was, I would have started sooner and had more of them. <laughs> because I got to say, it's wonderful. She gets me going. She did a sleepover last night. Mm-hmm. And that child, and I think, why is it that a grandchild fills you with so much joy? And I think it's because for those brief moments, you are able to see the world through their eyes, that it's all potential and no, no cost to that potential. And the older we get, the more we feel there's a cost attached to our potential. We feel free when we're with our grandchildren 
And so that's what gets me going during the day. We've spoken a lot about the word you in this. Who is the Stephen Tobolowsky at the age of 71? He is a guy who's had a career. I did have a career. I am still working. Uh, But it happened almost overnight that I lost my ambition. So that's a big difference between me and the younger Stephen. The younger Stephen was always looking, I got to move ahead. I got to find something that's going to get me to the next level. Mm. Uh, And even after I did Groundhog Day, which was such an enormously great movie and a great part for me, changed my life completely. Then it's like, well, they want me for this TV show and this TV. Which one am I going to go? Which is going to help my, you know, now I'm going like, nope, done. Done with the career. You know, the career has been as far as I could have done from a kid from Dallas successful. Now I'm at the tail end of that with people saying, well, you have had a career. Will you be in our show? And I go, sure. And I don't care. Uh, I rem- my manager said, oh, you've got to say no to this project. Like, no one's going to see it. And I go like, Stephen, I don't need to be seen now. I've been seen. I'm 71. No, I don't care if any casting director sees this show and goes like, wait a minute. We need this guy to play grandpa in so-and-so-and-so-and-so. You know, suddenly it happened one day that my ambition just went. And all I want to do now is understand this, what this journey has been. That's the serious part. And celebrate it. That's the not serious part. And uh, every day is filled with those two things. What do you do now when you're, when you're not working? What, what are your days filled with? Uh, well, a lot of grandbaby because my wife and I are essential uh, caregivers to my son and his wife because she's a pediatrician, he's a professor, and mm. it's COVID, and they need help watching the baby. Yeah. So that that helps me a lot. And also, I am finding some truth in uh, something Solomon was talking about, about the temple. I think it, I want to say it's the people who know the Bible better than me. It's, I think it's the 41st proverb, something like that. But it's, as you get old, old the love of philosophy and the love of ideas is very important because they age very well. I've Like these books you see behind me, I love philosophy, and I love the ideas of great thinkers through the age, uh, whether they're religious thinkers or not religious. I, I appreciate it because, in a way, it's doing what you're doing on this show. Those people have said like, well, this is what has gotten me through the day. And I read these guys and I read, you know, like Epictetus. You know, Epictetus was, have you heard of Epictetus? Yes, I have. Yes. Excellent. So he was a Greek slave, uh, lived kind of around 6 BC and then he lived on but he was a slave who was freed. And so all of his works are about the evils of slavery and the importance of freedom. And he was such a popular 
teacher at the time, that people read him. And when the Roman Empire came and overcame those countries, they embraced this Greek philosopher as opposed to getting rid of him. The Roman Empire embraced Epictetus. And because the Roman Empire went all the way up to Great Britain at the time, Epictetus was taught all through Europe and all these places. And because he was so popular during uh, the Enlightenment, the period of the Enlightenment, Epictetus was one of the few philosophers from that that was translated into Romance languages, like German, French, Epictetus. And one of the things Epictetus wrote way back when, which was picked up by a certain group of other people, was, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The Declaration of Independence of the United States is based on something Epictetus wrote way back when, and all through a chain of circumstances that got him there. And the other thing Epictetus did was the 12-step program. Is like he wrote about saying, you only, have con- you only have control over certain things. You can't control things you can't control. Over. And, and so the 12-step program are things that are based on the teachings of Epictetus. So yes, as, at 71 years of age, I'm still hungry to read these guys, these yeah. Greek and Roman philosophers, because they were so, so cool. That's great. Now, I, I like to end the podcast by asking the same question I did at the start. Stephen Uh-oh. Tobolowsky, do you think that nature or nurture had the greatest impact on you? I think nature. I'm, I think nature more than anything because I was a nature guy born through it, through mother nature, and the nature that was imbued in me, I'd say nature. Yeah. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. As always, you're such a wonderful person and always so great to chat to. And it's an honor for me to chat to you after, you know, being such a fan for such a long time. And you're always very giving with your time. How do people find your podcast and everything that you do? I think you could just... this is my pooch coming in. I see. Well, don't let that pooch see my kitty over here. It's uh, the Tobolowsky Files is on the internet. Uh, I've been advised that it's one of the Apple podcasts now. Yep, so, yep. you know, it's it's on Apple Podcasts, but you could go to the website, Tobolowsky Files, and there's the uh, mother load of all my podcasts, free of charge. There's no paywall because David Chen and I wanted it to be free. And so that's a good place where they could find that, TobolowskyFiles.com. It's a great podcast. Stephen, thank you so much, this version of you, for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you, Sammy. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Nature or Nurture for this week. My name is Sammy Peterson and you can follow me, SamPeterson91, on Instagram. I also have a comedy podcast called Confessions. You can find that. The handles are Confessions, the podcast on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. You can also just search it on your regular podcast apps. Please do rate this podcast 
Uh, I would love that. It helps get the podcast out there to so many people. Thank you to the wonderful Michelle Laurie and Matthew Tankard. They're, they're great producers and I couldn't do this without them. Please do share this podcast around. I'd love to get it out there to as many people as possible. So please do share it with a friend and tell the person that you just heard on this podcast that you've really enjoyed hearing their chat. Thank you so much. Hope you have a good week and I will talk to you very, very soon. Goodbye. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com covered.